This podcast is brought to you by WeTransfer, the world's largest file transfer service. Since 2009, WeTransfer's free platform has been enabling creative thinkers around the world. Visit wetransfer.com today and see for yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Welcome to What About, the podcast about how initial ideas develop into the fully formed stories we find in magazines. I like to imagine the writer at the editorial meeting leaning forward to convince his colleagues of an idea, saying, What about? Each episode of What About looks at one story from one magazine. We open with me talking to the editor about the origins of the story, and then we get to hear it, read in full. We're focusing on the individual story, that essential building block of magazine making, and the editorial work that goes into creating and finessing it. The New York Times magazine is one of the world's most celebrated publications. It has set its standards so high and for so long, we almost take it for granted. At MagCulture, we hear a lot about the design team and the art direction, so it's a pleasure to catch up with Editor-in-Chief Jake Silverstein and talk about storytelling from his side of the creative process. Welcome, Jake. Good to be here. Thanks very much for taking time to join us. I know it must be a very intense routine working on a weekly magazine. Obviously, as far as the reader's concerned, the magazine pops into their mailbox on a Sunday. I mean, you're working longer than a week on every issue, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, In some cases, we work for more than a year Mm -hmm. from the very beginning of an idea to when it pops into the reader's hands. Um, Of course, that's what we want the reader to experience, right? It's a sort of seamless miracle of this well-produced magazine just popping into their hands Uh on a weekly basis. But, of course, there's quite a bit of effort going on behind the scenes. For sure. I would say, on average, the year-long projects, like some of our special issues, are perhaps the exception to the rule. Generally, we are on a regular issue of the magazine. We're probably working about, I mean, each individual story may have its own gestation period, but the whole issue we're probably working on for maybe three weeks ahead of time. And presumably with the regular issues, they're made up for different stories and sometimes a story will fall back a week. Sometimes it might suddenly become very newsworthy and jump forward a week. So it's a kind of mixed, continually shifting set of stories. That's right. Uh, Sometimes continually shifting more than we would even like. Indeed. Well, (laughs) Um, outside forces, yes. (laughs) That's right. There are many outside forces. We encourage and seek out a lot of really literary types of writing in the magazine, and that's often writing that is hard to stand over a writer who's composing a sort of beautiful essay and crack the whip and say, the deadline is at 5 p.m. So sometimes those kinds of pieces can have a longer gestation period or a more unpredictable one. For sure. And I imagine a fair number of such pieces do... a lot of toing and froing backwards and forwards between yourself and the writers. Oh, absolutely. And not so much myself. I mean, the majority of the toing and froing is between the writers and their story editors. Mm-hmm. We have an amazing crew of story editors at the New York Times Magazine. And what makes the writing in the magazine as good as it is, is their work with the writers. And I sort of give them direction about the sort of the course that I would like a piece to go on. And we'll talk sometimes about structure, but the work that happens in the trenches where the, the pieces getting their polish and their wonderful turns and so forth. That all happens between the story editors and the writers, and I give them much credit for all that. And let's move on to the idea of these special issues, because it's quite a familiar strategy on a weekly to have a series of particular subjects which are dealt with on an annual basis. I mean, I think you do a food issue, a music issue. Uh, There's a New York issue. There's a few of these specials that you do. There's almost 15 they're all special. All the children are special. Mm-hmm. Some of them are more <laughs> special than others. One such special issue is the one we're going to be having a look at here. It's the 2016 New York edition, the High Life edition, which got a lot of attention at the time. Can you just talk through how that issue was dreamt up? 
So this particular issue, the high life issue, which was about life in New York City above 800 feet. And what we were really referring to with that designation is this multitude of mostly new, although some of them are a bit older, but mostly new high-rise residential mm-hmm. real estate, which has been shooting up in New York City over the last 15 years or so. Just to put that in context, I mean, obviously, anybody listening will think, well, New York is full of skyscrapers, but these are even taller than the older buildings that we might think of as on the New York skyline. That's right. These are what people have taken to calling super talls, and they're quite tall, and part of what has enabled that is a lot of new advances in engineering, which have given builders and engineers the the capability of building these things taller than ever before. But also it's just money. There's just like a lot of money sloshing around that mostly foreign buyers want to park in New York City real estate. So I guess in a sense, the starting point for the issue was, let's take the reader to the top of those little skinny buildings. Yeah. I mean, in a funny way, this is an issue where one of the things that's fun about magazine making is that little obsessions or hobgoblins or stray thoughts that have plagued you for years, you can get out through the process of making a magazine. I remember when I first moved to New York City in 1999, I grew up in California, and I remember being struck by the density of tall buildings in New York City. And I remember having the notion walking around the city that there was a whole other kind of neighborhood that existed at these higher altitudes (laughs) and that these people existed in a sort of continuous strata of society or or business or something that in, in which they had maybe similar concerns and similar experiences. And of course, that's a little bit of a fantasy, but I, that idea took root in my head. Many, many years passed. And then we were talking about this issue and Kathy Ryan, a director of photography, came in one day very passionate about the idea that these super tall buildings were going up and what they were creating was the possibility for new views of New York City, a perspective on the city that would be maybe 300 feet above the previous uh-huh. perspective that we'd had on the city. And so Kathy got really excited and said, if we just get somebody up to the top of these buildings, maybe even ones that are still under construction so that you have you know, open walls or things that would be dramatic to shoot from, we would see the city as it has never been seen before. Mm-hmm. And we've, and Kathy just, as is often the case, she just had an idea for a picture that she wanted yeah. and didn't really have a complex kind of vision for the editorial structure that would exist around that picture. She just had a, a passion for this image that was in her head. And it reawakened this old thought I had had as a young person in the city about these neighborhoods at high altitudes. And so we kind of put those ideas together, started thinking about an issue that was dedicated to life above 800 feet in New York City. And then many brilliant additions were made to that wisp of an idea by other folks, including a real kind of breakthrough idea from a design standpoint to turn the entire magazine on its side so that we could accommodate even taller photographs by using a kind of calendar page turning style through the magazine. I believe that was a Matt Willey idea. That was obviously, well, quite literally a turning point. But the issue got a lot of attention for that decision. And it won awards and it's been very, very well lauded. But I think perhaps one element, and maybe we talked about the photography, we talked about uh, the 90 degrees shift of all the content. But Somehow the actual written content, fantastic though it is, and everyone that's read it will acknowledge that, somehow that's been left behind in the story a little, perhaps. <laughs> how, how, wonder, how wonderful of you to want to shine a light on the writers. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. 
Um, so I'd like to move on to talk uh, about the writing, but in particular, yes. uh, the choice of Helen MacDonald to write a piece about the wildlife up in the air, because the intent behind the issue and the photographic stories is all very clear in terms of portraying the massive changes that have happened in New York City. But then, of course, when it comes to the writing, mm, then mm -hmm. you're free to, to, for instance, bring in someone like Helen MacDonald to talk yeah. about something which is absolutely associated but is slightly tangential. It'd be great to hear you talk about how that piece came to be in the issue. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Helen is just a treasure. She's one of the most wonderful writers writing in English today. And for those listeners who are not familiar with Helen's work, the place to start, of course, is her much celebrated book, H's for Hawk. Mm -hmm. She's often described as a nature writer. She does write about nature, but she's really so much more than that and really a writer about kind of the human condition, even though she often writes about it through the prism of writing about animals and the environment and, and other forms of nature. So she wrote a column for us for a little while called On Nature, and now she's writing features for us. And she's wonderful. We knew we, we always kind of want to use Helen in any kind of way that we can. If there's a special issue, often people will say, hey, maybe Helen could do something about, you know, <laughs> X, Y, or Z, because um, she's, just, she's just such a joy to read. And in this issue... Most of our thinking had been about like, well, what's what are the people like who live up at the tops of these buildings and what are the various kind of engineering feats that have allowed these buildings to get so high? And, you know, we were thinking a lot about the kind of human world that builds and occupies these buildings. I can't remember exactly where the idea came from, but somebody said, well, we should write about bird watching too. We should write about the fact that these buildings take you up into realms of the sky that give you a kind of perspective or an opportunity to see bird life that you wouldn't see at lower altitudes. And then naturally we thought of Helen. And Helen had already been thinking about this. It's just been, she'd known for years, as I suppose you do if you are into bird watching, that New York City bird watchers will often climb to the top of the Empire State Building to watch migrating birds. And when we contacted her, you know, she said, well, actually it's the perfect time of year for this. I mean, this is one of the things that's so wonderful about Helen is she immediately kind of turned this pretty straightforward idea into something quite magical by thinking of it as, as she put it, sort of like reverse submersibles, that these tall buildings were just as a submersible will take you down into the depths of an unfamiliar environment of the ocean and allow you to see up close, you know, all the strange marine life that exists down there. So too were these tall buildings taking you up, not down, but up into another strange ecosystem that's unfamiliar to earthbound humans and giving you a kind of view into that world as well. And that was just a, a beautiful and very Helen way to think about this. So she began looking around for uh, some New York City birders who she could accompany to the top of the Empire State Building, and she found some, and she went to look. The migrating birds tend to migrate at night because it's safer for them. There are fewer predators and traffic helicopters and so forth. <laughs> so she had to go up there in the evening. But of course, she also needed good weather because she wouldn't be able to see anything in the fog. She had, I believe, like three or four nights when she was in town and could do this. Mm -hmm. And the first two nights were quite foggy. But she went to the top of the building anyway, to the observation deck. And she tells this funny story about going up there. She was literally the only person up there because, you know, normally the Empire State Building observation deck is packed with tourists on a foggy night. Nobody goes up there at all. So she was up there all alone and the guards were kind of eyeballing her, wondering what this strange woman was doing. The third night she went back and the weather was perfect. The lines, of course, for to get to the roof were around the block and she waited and she got to the top and 
she saw these incredible flocks of various birds flying north. And she just, she wrote a kind of wonderful piece that takes you on that journey with her and that gives you a way of, of understanding that ecosystem that exists up there. It's just a wonderful piece, and in part because she just makes you see the city differently. You know, she tells you that that New York City lies on the Atlantic Flyway, which is a route that is flown by millions of birds flying north, migrating north, and then migrating back south again. You know, you just don't, if you're not a bird watcher, I assume many of our readers aren't, most people aren't, you just don't think about New York City existing in a kind of like ecological system like that. You think of it as a teeming city of people and taxi cabs and hot dog stands and these super tall buildings as well. And she just has an ability to make you see the city differently. And the other thing that was beautiful about this was that a lot of what we were writing about in documenting life at above 800 feet was just wealth, was like extreme wealth, right? I mean, the only people who can afford to have these apartments are mm -hmm. the 1% of yeah. the 1%. Most of them aren't even occupied full-time. And so there was something, even though the buildings are engineering marvels and the New York City skyline is this kind of incredible thing that can be enjoyed by all from afar, the experience of being at 800 feet, except for people, average folks going to the top of the Empire State Building, is really exclusive and reserved for only a select few who are also fabulously wealthy. And so there was something a little icky about like lavishing so much attention on just the wealthy and the rich and we <laughs> wanted to figure out ways that we weren't only writing about very rich people in this issue and so helen's essay ended up being a nice way to write about we're not writing about people at all we're writing about the birds that fly at this height and it's funny too is that you know most songbirds i learned this from reading helen's essay fly at about 3500 feet and larger birds fly much higher. They may well fly at like 10,000 feet. So the tallest building in New York City is the World Trade Center at 1,700, 1,800 feet. So even the wealthiest and most audacious humans who seek to live at the highest possible altitude in one of the richest cities on earth can only barely, barely make it to like the bottom end of the lowest migration routes of the songbirds, not even the biggest birds, but the littlest birds. That was kind of nice. So, uh, so nature wins. Nature always wins. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, on that note, I think we should cross over and actually hear the piece and get Helen's insight into the wildlife above Manhattan. Jake, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Winging it. Manhattan's airspace may look empty, but it teems with life. By Helen MacDonald. Dusk is falling over Midtown on a chilly evening in early May. I Google the weather forecast once again on my phone. It's still north-northeasterly winds and clear skies, then pull on my coat and walk down Fifth Avenue toward the Empire State Building. The line for the observation deck snakes around the block, and I'm the only person in it wearing a pair of binoculars around my neck, which makes me a little self-conscious. For an hour, I inch forward, up escalators, through marble halls, past walls of soft gold wallpaper, before squeezing into a crowded elevator and emerging on the 86th floor. At over a thousand feet above the city, there's a strong breeze and a spectacular sea of lights spilling out far below. It's so astonishing a view, I almost forget to breathe. 
Behind the tourists pressed against the perimeter fence, there's a man leaning back against the wall. Above him, the stars and stripes flap languidly in the night air. I can't see his face in the gloom, but I know this is the man I've come to meet because he's holding a pair of binoculars that look far better than mine and his face is upturned to the sky. There's an urgency to the way he stands that reminds me of people I've seen at skeet shoots waiting for the trap to fire the next target. His tense with anticipation. This is Andrew Farnsworth, a soft-spoken 43-year-old researcher at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and I'm joining him here in hope of seeing a wildlife phenomenon that twice a year sweeps almost unseen above the city, the seasonal night flights of migrating birds. I can't help thinking this is an absurdly incongruous place for a nature-viewing expedition. Apart from the familiar exceptions, pigeons, rats, mice, sparrows, we tend to think of wild creatures as living far from the city's margins, and nature as the city's polar opposite. It's easy to see why. The only natural things visible from this height are a faint scatter of stars above and the livid bruise of the Hudson running through the clutter of lights below. Everything else is us. The flash of aircraft, the tilt of bright smartphones, the illuminated grids of windows and streets. Skyscrapers are at their most perfect at night, full-fledged dreams of modernity that erase nature and replace it with a new landscape wrought of artifice, a cartography of steel and glass and light. But people live in them for the same reason that they travel to wild places, to escape the city. The highest buildings raise you above the mess and chaos of life at street level, they also raise you into something else. The sky may seem like an empty place, just as we once thought the deep ocean to be a lifeless void. But like the ocean, this is a vast habitat full of life. Bats and birds, flying insects, spiders, wind-blown seeds, microbes, drifting spores. The more I stare at the city across miles of dusty, uplit air, the more I begin to think of these super-tall buildings as machines that work like deep-sea submersibles, transporting us to inaccessible realms we cannot otherwise explore. Inside them, the air is calm and clean and temperate. Outside is a tumultuous world teeming with unexpected biological abundance, and we are standing in its midst. Above us, LED bulbs around the base of the spire cast a soft halo of pale light up into the darkness. An incandescent blur of white skips across it. Through binoculars, it resolves into a noctuid moth, wings flapping as it climbs vertically toward the tower. No one fully understands how moths like these orientate themselves while migrating. There's speculation that they might navigate by sensing Earth's magnetic fields. This one is flying upward in search of the right airflow that will allow it to travel where it wants to go. Windborne migration is an arthropod speciality, 
allowing creatures like aphids, wasps, lacewings, beetles, moths and tiny spiders hoisted on strands of electrostatically charged silk to travel distances ranging from tens to hundreds of miles. These drifting creatures are colonisers, pioneers looking for new places to live, and they'll make a home wherever they find one. Place a rosebush out on the arid environment of a top-floor balcony, and soon wind-borne sap-sucking aphids will cluster on its stems, followed by the tiny wasps that parasitise them. Insects travel above us in extraordinary numbers. In Britain, the research scientist Jason Chapman uses radar systems aimed into the atmosphere to study their high-altitude movements. Over seven and a half billion can pass over a square mile of English farmland in a single month, about 5,500 pounds of biomass. Chapman thinks the number passing over New York City may be even higher, because this is a gateway to a continent, not a small island surrounded by cold seas, and summers here are generally hotter. Once you get above 650 feet, he says, you're lofted into a realm where the distinction between city and countryside has little or no meaning at all. During the day, chimney swifts feast on these vast drifts of life. During the night, so do the city's resident and migrating bats and nighthawks with white-flagged wings. On days with northwest winds in late summer and early fall, birds, bats and migrant dragonflies all feed on rich concentrations of insects caused by powerful downdrafts and eddies around the city's high-rise buildings, just as fish swarm to feed where currents congregate plankton in the ocean. It's not just insects up there. The tallest buildings, like the Empire State, One World Trade Centre and other new supertowers, project into airspace that birds have used for millenniums. The city lies on the Atlantic Flyway, the route used by hundreds of millions of birds to fly north every spring to their breeding grounds and back again in the fall. Most small songbirds tend to travel between 3,000 and 4,000 feet from the ground, but they vary their altitude depending on the weather. Larger birds fly higher, and some, like shorebirds, may well pass over the city at 10,000 to 12,000 feet. Up here, we'll be able to see only a fraction of what is moving past us. Even the tallest buildings dip only into the shallows of the sky. Though you can see migrating raptors soaring at altitudes well over 800 feet over the city during the day, most species of diurnal birds migrate after nightfall. It's safer. Temperatures are cooler and there are fewer predators around. Fewer, not none. Just before I arrived, Farnsworth saw a peregrine falcon drifting ominously around the building. Peregrines frequently hunt at night here. From high-rise lookout perches, they launch flights out into the darkness to grab birds and bats. In more natural habitats, falcons cache the bodies of birds they've killed among crevices in cliffs. The ones here tuck their kills into ledges on high-rises, including the Empire State. For a falcon, a skyscraper is simply a cliff. It brings the same prospects, the same high winds, 
the same opportunities to stash a takeout meal. We stare out into the dark, willing life into view. Minutes pass. Farnsworth points. There, he says. High above us is a suspicion of movement, right at the edge of vision, where the sky dissolves into dusty chaos. I swing my binoculars up to my eyes. Three pale pairs of beating wings flying north-northeast in close formation. Black-crowned night herons. I've seen them only ever hunched on branches or crouched low by lakes and ponds, and it's astounding to see them wrenched so far from their familiar context. I wonder how high they are. Those are pretty large, Farnsworth says. When you look up into the light, everything looks bigger than it is and closer than it is. He estimates that the herons are about 300 feet above us, nearly 1,500 feet in the air. We watch them vanish into darkness. I feel less like a naturalist and more like an amateur astronomer waiting for a meteor shower, squinting expectantly into the darkness. I try a new tactic, focusing my binoculars on infinity and pointing them straight up. Through the lenses, birds invisible to the naked eye swim into view, and there are birds above them and birds higher still. It strikes me that we are seeing a lot of birds. An awful lot of birds. For every larger bird I see, 30 or more songbirds pass over. They are very small. Watching their passage is almost too moving to bear. They resemble stars, embers, slow tracer fire. Even through binoculars, those at higher altitudes are tiny, ghostly points of light. I know that they have loose clenched toes tucked to their chests, bright eyes, thin bones and a will to fly north that pulls them onward night after night. Most of them spent yesterday in central or southern New Jersey before ascending into darkness. Larger birds keep flying until dawn. The warblers tend to come earlier to earth, dropping like stones into patches of habitat further north to rest and feed over the following day. Some, like yellow-rumped warblers, began their long journeys in the southeastern states. Others, like rose-breasted grosbeaks, have made their way up from Central America. Something tugs at my heart. I'll never see any of these birds again. If I weren't this high, and the birds weren't briefly illuminated by this column of light cast by a building thrown up through the Depression years to celebrate earthly power and capital confidence, I'd never have seen them at all. Farnsworth pulls out a smartphone. Unlike everyone else holding screens up here, he's looking at radar images from Fort Dix in New Jersey, part of a National Weather Service radar network that provides near-continuous coverage of airspace over the continental USA. It's definitely a heavy migration night tonight, he says. When you see those kinds of patterns on radar, in particular those greens, he explains, you're talking about 1,000 to 2,000 birds per cubic mile, potentially, which is almost as dense as it gets, so it's a big night. After days of bad weather for birds wanting to fly north, with low cloud and winds in the wrong direction, 
a bottleneck of migrants built up, and now the sky is full of them. I watched the pixelation blossom on the animated radar map, a blue and green dendritic flower billowing out over the whole east coast. This is biological stuff that's up in the atmosphere, Farnsworth says, pointing one finger to the screen. It's all biology. Meteorologists have long known that you can detect animal life by radar. Just after World War II, British radar scientists and Royal Air Force technicians puzzled over mysterious plots and patterns that appeared on their screens. They knew they weren't aircraft and christened them angels before finally concluding that they were flocks of moving birds. That was their contamination, right? Farnsworth says of radar meteorologists. They wanted to filter all that stuff out. Now the biologists want to do the reverse. Farnsworth is one pioneer of a new multidisciplinary science fit for an era in which weather radar has become so sensitive it can detect a single bumblebee over 30 miles away. It's called aeroecology and it uses sophisticated remote sensing technologies like radar, acoustics and tracking devices to study ecological patterns and relationships in the skies. The whole notion of the aerosphere and airspace as habitat is not something that has come into the collective psyche until recently, Farnsworth says, and this new science is helping us understand how climate change, skyscrapers, wind turbines, light pollution and aviation affect the creatures that live and move above us. At ten o'clock, cirrus clouds slide overhead, like oil poured on water. Ten minutes later, the sky is clear again, and the birds are still flying. We move to the east side of the observation deck. A saxophonist begins to play, and in concert with this unlikely soundtrack, we begin to see birds far closer than before. One in particular. Though it is overexposed in the light, we detect a smear of black at its chest and a distinctive pattern on its tail, a male yellow-rumped warbler. It flickers past and disappears around the corner of the building. A little while later, we see another flying the same way. Then another. It dawns on us that this is the same bird circling. Another one joins it, both now drawn helplessly toward and around the light reeling about the spire as if caught on invisible strings. Watching them dampens our exuberant mood. The spire is lit with pulsing rivulets of climbing colour like a candle tonight to mark the building's 85th anniversary. And these birds have been attracted to it, pulled off course, their exquisite navigational machinery overwhelmed by light, leaving them confused and in considerable danger. After being mesmerised in this way, some birds drag themselves free and continue their journey. Others don't. New York is among the brightest cities in the world after Las Vegas, only one node in a flood of artificial illumination that runs from Boston down to Washington. We cherish our cities for their appearance at night, but it takes a terrible toll on migrating songbirds. 
You can find them dead or exhausted at the foot of high-rise buildings all over America. Disoriented by light and reflections on glass, they crash into obstacles, fly into windows, spiral down to the ground. More than 100,000 die each year in New York City alone. Thomas King, of the New York pest control company M&M Environmental, has had calls from residents of high-rise buildings asking him to deal with the birds colliding with their windows during migration season. He tells them that there's no solution, but they can talk to their building manager about turning the lights off. It helps. Programmes like the New York City Audubon's Lights Out New York have encouraged many high-rise owners to do the same, saving both energy and avian lives. Every year, the Tribute in Light shines twin blue beams into the Manhattan night as a memorial to the lives lost on September 11. They rise four miles into the air and are visible 60 miles from the city. On peak migration nights, songbirds spiral down toward them, calling, pulled from the sky, so many circling in the light, they look like glittering, whirling specks of paper caught in the wind. On one night last year, so many were caught in the beams that the few pixels representing the tribute site glowed super bright on the radar maps. Farnsworth was there with the Audubon team that got the lights shut off intermittently to prevent casualties. They switched off the tribute eight times that night for about 20 minutes at a time, releasing the trapped birds to return to their journey. Each time the lights went back on, a new sweep of birds was drawn in. The twin towers made ghosts of light, visited over and over by winged travellers, intermittently freed into darkness, before a crowd rushed in to take their place. Farnsworth is a lead scientist in BirdCast, a project that combines a variety of methods, weather data, flight calls, radar, observers on the ground, to predict the movements of migrating birds throughout the continental United States and forecast big nights like this that might require emergency lights-out action. The flow of birds over the observation deck continues, but it's getting late. I make my farewell, take the elevator back down the building and wander uphill to my apartment. Though it's long past midnight, I'm wide awake. Part of what high-rise buildings are designed to do is change the way we see, to bring us different views of the world, views intimately linked with prospect and power, to make the invisible visible. The birds I saw were mostly unidentifiable streaks of light, like thin retinal scratches or splashes of luminous paint on a dark ground. As I look up from street level, the blank sky above seems a very different place, deep and coursing with life. Two days later, I decide to walk in Central Park and find it full of newer migrants that arrived here at night and stayed to rest and feed. A black and white warbler tacking along a slanted tree trunk deep in the ramble. A yellow rumped warbler sallying forth into the bright spring air to grab flies. A black-throated blue warbler, so neat and spry, he looks like a folded pocket handkerchief. These songbirds are familiar creatures 
with familiar meanings. It's hard to reconcile them with the remote lights I witnessed in the sky. Living in a high-rise building bars you from certain ways of interacting with the natural world. You can't put out feeders to watch robins and chickadees in your garden. But you are set in another part of their habitual world. A nocturne of ice crystals and cloud and wind and darkness. High-rise buildings, symbols of mastery over nature, can work as bridges toward a more complete understanding of the natural world stitching the sky to the ground, nature to the city. For days afterward, my dreams are full of songbirds, the familiar ones from woods and backlots, but also points of moving light, little astronauts, travellers using the stars to navigate, having fallen to earth for a little while, before picking themselves up and moving on. At MagCulture, we love magazines. To hear more about what we do, visit our website, magculture.com. This podcast is presented by WeTransfer Studios and MagCulture. Visit wetransfer.com slash thisworks to see more of our creative collaborations.